Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming together to support each other in practice. The community is very important. We can't do this practice by ourselves. We can do aspects by ourselves, like sitting at home on a regular basis, but it really takes the community, the congregation, to support us and um, encourage us, give us a little kick in the rear end when we need it. Uh, so thank you all for forming that sangha, that community. I wanted to talk today about a ceremony that we did last night. We always try to share on Sunday uh, with people what we've been doing during the week. And last night we do, did a ceremony that we do about once a month called Fusatsu. It's a ceremony of confession and atonement. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. Here we start with a, a, a circle gathering, so all of the residents uh, gather and in a, in a darkened room, they uh, pass an incense box around and offer incense and then uh, can speak in particular to anything that they feel that they would like to essentially get off their conscience. Um, this is a very ancient ceremony, it was often done uh, at the full moon. And uh, for instance, in uh, the Thich Nhat Hanh community, it's done regularly. In a lot of the Theravadan communities, it's done regularly. And it's not only a time for people to open their hearts about things that they've uh, done that they regret, but also uh, in some of the monasteries, people can speak about something that happened that was difficult with another person. So, uh, but it's done in a very, very careful and respectful way, and it's held in confidence. So nothing that was said in these circles leaves the circle, or is, and we don't even speak to the person about what they said afterwards. It's, it's theirs to hold and to work with. It's not ours to comment on. And I know in the, uh, in the monastic community, they often refer to each other as brothers or sisters, or brothers and sisters. So the relationship becomes that close when you live together for years. Um, and so you speak, hopefully, the way you would speak to a beloved brother or a sister. Then after the circle here, this is the way uh, we do it here, then uh, we come to the formal ceremony, which begins with a very dramatic call on the drum. And it has lots of bows. Uh, as was mentioned this, this morning, uh, we regard bows as the yoga posture of humility. Uh, humility is part of confession and atonement. So when we humble ourselves and touch the earth and bring ourselves back to gratitude to the earth from which we arose, that without the earth we wouldn't be here and every element in our body has come from the earth. So we touch our foreheads to the earth and raise our hands up, raising up our human potential for greater wisdom, clarity of mind, and greater compassion, warmth, and kindness in our heart. All of us know that we could be wiser and more compassionate. 
So we do a lot of bows during the ceremony. And the ceremony begins with everyone kneeling. And this is what the chant leader says. Brothers and sisters in the practice, when confessing, we recognize and openly acknowledge the harm of our own past deeds. When repenting, we vow to purify our minds of ignorance, delusion, greed, and anger. Thus, the insincerity and dishonesty of the past and the effects of all evil deeds loosen and dissolve. Genuine repentance calls for more than sorrow about our past wrongdoings. We must also resolve that in the future, we will put an end to those thoughts and actions that cause pain to others and to ourselves. In a spirit of honesty and trust before Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and before our Sangha, let us now repent in silence any inappropriate and inadequate deeds of body, speech, or mind that weigh upon us. So then there's a pause where each person can call to mind any uh, inappropriate, inadequate deeds of body, speech, and mind. We have all said and done things that have brought harm to us and to other people, whether we did them intentionally or not. In the Christian tradition, they talk about acts of commission and acts of omission. So both actively, things that we have done or said that have caused harm to ourselves or others, whether we intended it or not, we have to take responsibility. Um, And then acts of omission, things that we could have done and didn't do. And as the chant says, of body, speech, and mind, body, speech, and mind, So um, things that we've said, things that we've said with our mouth, it's our body, but we we separate it out as speech. So uh, one of the reasons, besides the fact that we did Fusatsu last night, it's interesting, sometimes when you you clear, you clear your conscience uh, and repent of the things that you've done in the past, Sometimes, uh, right in that empty space, something comes up. So this very morning, something came up for me, not related to any of you. Uh, but I, this morning, very early, as I got up and my mind was confused, I looked at an email from uh, Europe, and it said, um, oh, we're, we're expecting you and your co-teacher to come and do a training in, in September. And, you know, we've planned this and we've rented the place. And I was absolutely stunned. It did not give the year. And September is very close. And um, we hadn't planned to travel to Europe in September. (laughs) But these were people we had talked with two years ago about organizing a conference uh, or training for professionals. And then we didn't hear anything from them. And we thought, well, maybe they just decided not to hold the training. And... They're a little bit embarrassed because they were so enthusiastic about it, about getting back in touch with us. And we tried once to reach out. We didn't hear anything. Uh, And things sometimes get complicated in other languages and other cultures. So we just decided, okay. And then suddenly I get this message (laughs) that we're supposed to teach. So I wrote, thinking I was writing to my co-trainer, I (laughs) I wrote and and I said, 
oh my gosh, and four exclamation marks. Because like, we're, we're leaving in two days to go to Norway and do this huge training with grants and research protocols and so on, just like overwhelming, and we're just trying to get ready to go to that. And suddenly this thing comes up, and I'm thinking, is it in three weeks we're supposed to do this training in France? So I said, oh my gosh. And then I sent it to the wrong person. I sent it to the person in France, because <laughs> I was very sleepy. It didn't change. You know, I didn't notice who I sent it to. didn't change the, the address. And so then she immediately wrote back and said, is that an expression of joy? <laughs> so then I wrote back and said, um, it's early morning sleepiness and joy and bewilderment. Which year are we talking about? <laughs> and then she said, oh, 2019, which was a relief. But then we, you know, I was just like, oh my, what have I said? What have I done? <laughs> so I had to write some other emails to kind of smooth things out. Uh, mm. <laughs> so that was interesting after having repented of, um, of speech, of, of speech that could uh, be difficult for people. <laughs> I, had, I actually said something else, which I'm not going to tell you because it's too embarrassing. <laughs> um, so I had to fix that, too. <laughs> So things that we've done with our body, speech, and mind. And in our Mangala Sutta, the sutra that we chant on Sunday mornings, it says um, a blessings, blessings in our life, one of them is speech that is true and pleasant to hear. So by that criteria, what I said was not pleasant to hear. It was just alarm, you know, alarm bells and then sent to the wrong person. So it, it wasn't pleasant to hear. And then things that we've done with our bodies. So we've all done things with our bodies to physically hurt someone, even if we didn't intend it. Um, you know, a classic example in our culture is if someone accidentally fires a gun and a bullet goes through the, the wall and hurts somebody or kills somebody, you're responsible for that, even though you didn't intend it. So we have to hold that standard for ourselves, too. Or maybe we stole something. So there was just a story in the paper about cafeteria ladies, two cafeteria ladies, who embezzled $500,000 from the cafeteria where they were working. These are ladies in their 60s. I mean, just, you know, it's amazing. We hear these stories all the time about people who just get tempted and, and steal. Or maybe we just took something that we thought had been discarded um, that didn't belong to us, but we thought, well, nobody wants this, so we took it. Well, it wasn't really ours. And, and the, the precept against stealing in the Theravada tradition is not to take the gift not yet given. Because in the Theravada tradition, everything has to be offered to you. In the Theravada tradition, the monks and nuns cannot even pick up an apple that's fallen on the ground and eat it. Everything has to be formally offered to them. So the gift not yet given is a really interesting phrase. Uh, or maybe we lost something that wasn't ours. Somebody gave us something and we lost it. Or maybe we used sexuality in inappropriate ways. Or maybe we left something somewhere where somebody stole, stumbled over it and was hurt. You know, there's so many ways with our body, 
intentionally or not, that we can cause harm to ourselves and others. And then mind, body, speech, and mind. So mind is also included, actually not just included, but mind is considered primary. So if we think unhelpful thoughts about somebody, does that have an effect? What do you think? If we think judgmental or angry or unhelpful thoughts about somebody, does the energy of our thoughts have an effect? What do you think? I see some nods. It's something really important to consider. Hmm? I discovered when I was teaching in uh, Alaska some years ago that um, many Mormons come to Buddhist practice, meditation practice, as part of actually of their requirements is that they do some kind of meditation practice because they regard mind as primary. And they know that all speech and all action comes from mind. So to really examine and be careful about our mind. And of course, in meditation, we have enough space to look at what the mind's up to, and what it's actually thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some uh, forgiveness for the mind because we don't have complete control over our mind. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes I discover my mind beginning a judgmental thought, and then I go, like, muffle my mind. Uh, because I don't want that to be out there as, as an energy, an unkind energy. Also, it's, if you're practicing diligently, there's a phenomenon that I call whiplash, karmic whiplash. And if, uh, if you're practicing hard and you think um, unkind thoughts, usually they'll come back and smack you. Yeah, I've had that happen many times. Uh, you'd think I would learn. Um, but it takes a while to learn. So, for example, if I think um, something like, well, that person's so clumsy, guaranteed I will do something clumsy within the next hour. Or why do they always do blah, blah, blah? And guaranteed I will do it in the next hour. As a, as a, a reminder, watch your mind. So if we think uh, unkind thoughts about somebody, judgmental or unkind thoughts, then does it affect the tone of our voice when we speak to that person? I think so. Does it affect the, uh, the expression on our face when we're encountering that person, or in our eyes, how we look at the person? I think so. And that can be perceived, right? We've all perceived that when somebody was upset with us, even though they're saying they're not upset. No, I'm, no, I'm not upset. No, it affects the tone of voice and it affects the face and how they look at us. So mind is primary, and that's why we focus in this practice on mind. The Dhammapada, which is a, a beautiful and very readable condensation of the teachings of the Buddha, the verse 1 and verse 2, so beginning the Dhammapada, verse 1 is, all mental phenomena have mind as their forerunner. They have mind as their chief. They are mind-made. If one speaks or acts with an evil mind, now evil is kind of an interesting term because in the Judeo-Christian context, it has the connotation of sin. But evil in Buddhism means difficult outcome, unwholesome, unskillful outcome. So it refers to the outcome. 
not that the person is evil who's thinking it. So if one speaks or acts with the, let's say, unwholesome mind, suffering follows them just as the wheel follows the hoofprint of the ox that draws the cart. So these are ancient times, and you can see an oxen drawing a cart, and then the footprints in the mud or the dust of the ox, and then here comes the wheel right away. So the Buddha is saying, as soon as we think something, then there's a consequence to that, and that's called karma. Karma means volitional action. So we, we know that speech is volitional, sort of, like this morning it wasn't very volitional when I wrote the email. Um, but we know that speech is volitional, especially if we have a gap, pause, before we speak. And we know that action is volitional. Right? Our, our legal system acknowledges that. But is our mind, what our mind thinks, volitional? So that's, that's the interface of our practice. That's the edge of our practice, is what our mind thinks and continues to think, volitional, and cannot be changed. So that's a primary aspect of our practice. Verse 2, all mental phenomenon have mind as their forerunner. They have mind as their chief. They are mind-made. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, and again, pure isn't the connotation of, of sinful. It means an open, spacious mind, a mind untroubled by lots of emotions and difficult thoughts. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows them like a shadow that never leaves. So the Buddha here is, spoke, is speaking directly about um, how things happen that thought, thoughts come first, and then speech follows, or action follows. And that those are all volitional, including mind. Now, mind doesn't become volitional until our practice is, is pretty far advanced. We were always catching the mind, doing, saying, thinking things that we, that we want to withdraw, or th- the thought and then the speech. You know, that it's just like, like that. Well, we want it to be Beginning the thought, uh-oh, let's withdraw this thought. This is not a kind or helpful thought. Before it becomes speech, bodily expression, or action. Action out of anger or judgment or distress. So my mind was not clear this morning. My mind was not clear this morning. And I should not have uh, said anything. In, our, in the Mangala Sutra, it says, Although involved in worldly ways, unshaken the mind remains. So, I was involved in worldly ways. Surprised by the fast pace of worldly ways. And my mind was shaken out of its equanimity. All mental phenomenon have mind as their forerunner. This is a commentary on the Dhammapada, in the sense that mind is the most dominant, and it is the cause of the other three mental phenomenon, namely feeling. Now again, I have to explain feeling from the point of view of Buddhism. We think of feeling as emotion. Feelings are emotions. But in Buddhism, feeling actually means a subtle feeling tone, positive, negative, or neutral, that then, in combination with thought, gives rise to emotions. And we think emotions 
I think most people think emotions come from your body, that your body just feels this emotion, and then it comes out as anger, let's say. But in Buddhism, we take everything apart. We create space and watch how things actually occur. So feeling tone uh, comes right after sensation in the, in the chain of causation. So there's first sensation, then there's feeling tone, and then it becomes elaborated as thought and, and action. So this feeling tone is very important. A- emotion comes way down the line. There's a culmination of feeling tone, thought, story, me- uh, physical distress, and so on. Combination of physical, unpleasant physical sensations and thought is emotion. It's an epiphenomena of mind and body. So the, well, I think one of the uh, examples that everybody could understand around here is you step outdoors and you go, ugh. So that's a negative feeling tone, ugh. Like withdraw, ugh. And then you go, what? And then you go, oh, unpleasant smell, what is it? And then you go, oh, it's the wanna mill and the, the paper mill and the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. Hmm? It can be very stinky around here when the wind blows from the paper mill. But you see how it's, it starts out as sensation. Sensation is molecules reach, reaching the olfactory receptors in our nose. So there's sensation, then there's feeling tone, ugh, and then there's what? Oh, smell, what kind of smell? Unpleasant smell, oh. Then thought, where did it come from? Oh, I hate the mill, they should clean up. You know, whatever comes, it's a whole elaboration of thoughts and judgments and opinions and so on. And that's where we get sucked into difficult emotions. Rather than having equanimity about, oh, maybe there's an environmental problem that needs to be worked on, if we wish to, if that's, if that's our, our cause in life, our purpose in life. So uh, the commenter is saying that mind is the cause of the other free, three phenomena, namely feelings, perception, and mental formations. So mental formations are you know, all, the th- all the thoughts about the smell. So I'll, I'll give you the opposite example. You could step outdoors and go, hmm. Like when I walk into our rooms here, sometimes I go, hmm. And then I go, what? And then I realize somebody has given us um, sage, dried sage from, the east, from Eastern Oregon in sage wands. And I love the smell, but it surprises me. So I'll walk in the room and go, hmm. And I, f- and I kind of perk up. And then I go, what? And then I go, oh, yeah, those sage wands. And then I think, oh, isn't that nice that you, Joe, and Linda gave us those sage wands? It's such a nice smell. And then I think of smudging, and I think purification. You know, then it elaborates right into this pleasant mental emotional state. So that's how it happens. So in our practice, we try to take it back and watch each step because we do have the ability to intervene sometimes and keep it from turning into difficult emotions, difficult speech, and difficult actions. So uh, the commenter says that none of these can arise if mind does not arise. So if our mind is open and quiet, spacious and luminous, and we are dwelling in the spacious luminosity of boundless mind, then these things don't happen. 
we can watch things arise, but we're not knocked off the base of equanimity by them. So speech and action of the body are karma. Karma means volitional action. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what karma means. Karma, uh, we think, oh, I have bad karma, you know, or this person has good karma, like luck. It's not luck. It actually is a physical truth. So dharma, actually, one of the meanings of dharma is truth. Like gravity is a dharma. Gravity is true. It affects all of us in predictable ways. And karma is the same. Karma is the truth. The truth that every thing has an effect. Every cause has an effect. And then that effect becomes a cause for the next effect. And so there's a chain that we initiate whenever we think something, say something, or do something, especially when we say something or do something. We initiate a chain of karma. Of volition. Every volitional action does that. And one of the beauties of practice is that if we have some difficult chains in our minds from, let's say, trauma in our childhood, rather than having to relive that and, and, and experience the consequences in our body or Let's say we were abused as children and we perpetuate it by abusing our own children. So rather than having to keep that going generation after generation, uh, when, we, when we learn to have a spacious mind, we can feel and see those old memories arise and we don't have to act on them. And when we don't act on them, when they, we don't initiate the endless chain of cause and effect by acting on them, then they lose their power. Gradually, 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 they lose their power. Gradually, 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 they lose their power. And it's a miracle when we can do that. So I worked in the field of child abuse for 30 years, and it was very common that we would see it perpetuated generation after generation, right? And people sometimes, often people say to me, oh, I just went back and found out how my parents were disciplined by my grandparents, and I can see how this got handed down generation after generation. But the almost miraculous effect of practice is we don't have to perpetuate it. We're not tied in to that perpetuation, generation after generation. So not only are we helping our own children or the people around us by not perpetuating the form of anger that was handed down to us, cruelty that was handed down to us, but we are doing something for the past generations that they couldn't do for themselves. We are cleaning up their karma when they could not clean up their karma. You see? So that's, it goes both ways in time. It's pretty amazing. So we're, we're cleaning up for the future, but we're also doing some cleaning up for the past, for people who weren't able to do that. So this is, we're talking directly about some, one of the most important forces in the whole world, karma. And when we talk about suffering, so the, the Dhammapada mentioned um, suffering. So the Dhammapada says, if one speaks or acts with, let's say, an unclear mind or a mind with evil intention, then suffering follows them, just as the wheel follows the hoofprint of the ox that draws the cart. And suffering, you know, is a strong word, and often people think, well, I'm not 
suffering. I'm not being tortured or I'm not a Syrian refugee being, you know, uh, banned from countries and restlessly wandering around Europe trying to find a place to settle down with my family. So uh, it does mean suffering, but it means physical or mental pain. And it, at its very bottom, it means unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction. So often when people have practiced for a long time or they practice a long retreat, they get down to that level of suffering, of that sense of unsatisfactoriness, of just basic dissatisfaction. And then we work directly with that. Is there some belief under that, some fixed belief under that, that I, sh- I shouldn't be uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable or mentally uncomfortable, that I have the right to be happy all the time, whatever the belief is. In our practice, we're able to move down deeper and deeper through our discomfort, our suffering, and see what is at the bottom of it. That's the promise of this practice. Even though the Buddha taught the first noble truth is to live as a human being, is to suffer, or let's say experience dissatisfaction, even though we have cars and houses and so on. the promise of the practice is there is a path, there's a way out. But that path is the way in. It starts with the way in, looking at the very cause of dissatisfaction. So sometimes I'll be sitting and I'll feel that dissatisfaction arise, and then I, I examine it very carefully. I say, okay, are you unhappy with the sitting cushion? No. Are you dissatisfied with the floor? No. Are you dissatisfied with the air coming in the window? Mm, no. Are you dissatisfied with the fact that the oxygen level in the air is healthy for you? Uh, no. So I just examine it and look at it very, very careful. where does, carefully, where does this dissatisfaction arise? And usually in examining it, it disappears. And then I'm satisfied again. It's very interesting. So every, uh, because when we look at things very carefully, they begin to dissolve, because they're actually dream dreams, unhappy dreams. So with every verse in the Dhammapada, there's a story that, that goes with it, why the Buddha said this. So why did the Buddha utter these words about um, mental, the mind being central, and the forerunner to everything that happens to us? So here's the story. It's about Thera Kakupala. While residing at the Jetavana Monastery in Savati, the Buddha uttered verse 1 of the Dhammapada with reference to Kakupala, a blind Thera. So this was a blind bhikkhu, a monk. And here's the story. On one occasion, Thera Kakupala came to pay homage to the Buddha at the Jetavana Monastery. One night, while pacing up and down in meditation, the Thera accidentally stepped on some insects. In the morning, some bhikkhus visiting the Thera found the dead insects. They thought ill of the Thera and reported the matter to the Buddha. The Buddha asked them whether they had seen the Thera killing the insects. When they answered in the negative, the Buddha said, Just as you had not seen him killing, so also he had not seen those living insects. Besides, as the Thera had already attained our hardship, he could have no intention of killing, and so was quite innocent. 
and then the Buddha uh, issues uh, issues the statement about mind being primary, and he's pointing back to their minds. Of course, you know, it's always happening to the Buddha. People come. And then they tattle on somebody. Oh, I saw somebody doing this. And they, oh, I saw somebody breaking this rule. And the Buddha not only gives a teaching about what happened, but he points back to the mind of the, of the gossipers. Right? So when we do the Fusatsu ceremony and we bring to mind memories of things that we've done that have hurt someone or other sentient beings, what do we do with that? And often it's unintentional, right? So driving along the road here at night, (coughs) moths fly into the windshield. And I narrowly missed a squirrel, and we've all probably had this situation where we didn't miss. Like several years ago, I had a deer jump out in front of of the car and hit it. And it disappeared, but I'm sure it died. I'm sure it was injured enough to die. So we we bear responsibility. We feel that in our heart because we're people of conscience. I'll never forget that deer. I know exactly where it happened and I drive very carefully in that area always. Or we have a, um, a chipmunk here that while we were digging in that, where we're remodeling that front garden where, the, where it looks now like a mountain of its own, <laughs> filled with rock, it's going to be a, a water, water feature, water pool. While digging there in the winter when the dirt was very hard, uh, someone who was digging hit a chipmunk that was hibernating with a, with a shovel and injured its face, its eye and its nose. And so we um, and felt terrible remorse for that, as any of us would, for injuring a li- an innocent living being. And so took, uh, we took the chipmunk in and nursed it back to health. And you may see by in the, in the cafeteria, we try to keep our snacks covered. The, the chipmunk is called ohashi now. And sometimes we go in and see the snack bowl with ohashi sitting right in the middle of all of the <laughs> snacks. <laughs> so ohashi knows when she gets hungry um, because she is impaired, she can come in and get snacks. But she has her own place for snacks. She's not supposed to be on the snack table. So we begin our uh, Fusatsu ceremony with confession. Now, confession is very interesting. Hmm? Is there a difference between keeping the things that we've done that are inadequate, unskillful, and harmed ourselves and others to ourselves, and then saying them out loud? Hmm? Is there a difference? What do you think? Those who were in the ceremony last night, what do you think? Is it helpful to say say out loud, say things out loud in the group? Erin, what do you think? I think it does. It does? Mm. To voice them. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Yulia. Anybody else who participated, what would you say?
So in this country, I think, in the Western world in particular, we try to maintain an illusion of perfection. Hmm? Yeah. And we have uh, idols out there, people that we think have the perfect body or the perfect intellect and so on. But w- nobody is perfect. If you read biographies of famous people, you discover that. Or even read the National Enquirer, you discover that <laughs> people have all kinds of problems. Um, so I think it is very helpful, not only to ourselves to admit that we're imperfect, but to other people too. Because it breaks that illusion of somewhere there's perfection. Right? To be a human being is to be imperfect. And to work with, a, work with that directly. So in AA, there's a moral inventory. right? Very important part of the 12 steps, a moral inventory where you you actually speak to someone else, usually your sponsor, after you've done a, a moral inventory and really looked at your life in detail. Very, very important that someone else hears it, even just one other person. So in the Mangala Sutra, it says, patience and willingness to accept one's faults. Willingness to accept our faults. Willingness to see and accept our faults. And we have some examples on the national scene of people who do not accept their faults and blame everyone else Mm -hmm. and the trouble that that causes. Speaking of trouble, Dana was saying this morning that uh, we we had a show of hands of how many people were Catholic at the table and breakfast table and had been to confession. I think it was about a third. And Dano, who was raised Catholic, said that they, they had to go to confession the first time in second grade. Do you know how old you are in second grade? Seven. Yes, seven. So you have to go and confess your evil deeds to a priest. And so my, one of my best friends in medicine is Catholic, and she said that her kids were working really hard before their first confession to try to think of something to confess. <laughs> And then there, other people have told me that uh, one little girl went in and, and said, Father, I have sinned. I have gonorrhea. And the priest went, what? <laughs> but she'd heard the word, word gonorrhea, and she knew that that was something bad. So she had <laughs> <she laughs> having gonorrhea. Because <laughs> you've got to have something to take in there, right, to offer up. And so... <laughs> But my, my friend said that, you know, that you've, there's a phenomenon of kids making things up. Like, I, I, was, I hit my brother when they actually didn't hit their brother. So then you've confessed to something you didn't actually do. So now you have lied. <laughs> so now you're on the path to perdition, you know, to hell, because now you've lied because you had to go to confession and make something up to confess. You could. You said, Father, I lied. Right. Yeah. But then you got to have something for the next time. Right. So maybe age seven is, uh, creates a little catch-22 
for children. And by the way, Hogan got very interested in confessionals and the practice of confessions. So you can talk to him at lunch if you want to. When we were in Europe, we visited a lot of cathedrals. There are lots of beautiful carved pieces of furniture, which are confessionals, which are not being used now. But in some cathedrals, there might be 20 of them around the sides. And then they maybe have one active and have a little light that shows the priest is in. So that's, that's a whole other uh, thing to consider, is confession. So then uh, in the repentance ceremony, we individually bring to mind, or in the circle, speak about things that we've done that were inadequate or harmful to ourselves or others. Speak in confidence, remember. Um, and then we hold those. So the ceremony is often called the ceremony of repentance. But my Dharma brother, Tetsugan Glassman, uh, chose the word atonement rather than repentance because he said it has the implication of holding at one, that we have broken away from our oneness in what we've done, and we're bringing it all back together, all, all the things that we acknowledge, and declaring our intention to restore our intimate connection with oneness, with everyone, and ultimately with the oneness. So to hold it, and then we make the point, often in the Jukai ceremony, to hold it when we do the repentance gatha, atonement gatha, to hold it and then completely let it go so that we don't carry around a big sack, a big burden full of our misdeeds and how terrible we are. Right? And then, <clears throat> after that, Often we have to make amends or do restitution. So that has to be considered as a whole practice. What can we do to make amends or do restitution for what we've done? Sometimes the person has died. Sometimes we can never find that person. But we could think of, of creative ways of making amends or doing restitution. So a simple example I mentioned was killing moths. Whenever, whenever a moth or something flies into the windshield, I chant the Jizo Dharani as, as repentance for my role in killing this living being and wish them a better, a better life in the future, that their life energy becomes uh, a more beneficial life energy. So let's chant the repentance verse together. It's on the card under your seat, the white card. And it begins with all evil karma ever committed by me since of old. So it's also acknowledging this chain of karma that comes up to us. And remember, evil means has a difficult outcome. In another tradition, they, call all, they, they say, all my ancient twisted karma. That sometimes we might even say something and it gets twisted by the other person's way of receiving it. And then it has creates difficulty for them. So we're not in charge of the chain of cause and effect, right? Outside of us, we're not in charge of how other people interpret what we say. So twisted is also part of it, that something can get, that had a good intention can get twisted and create unhappiness for another person. So let's, let's just chant this three times through. 
Gath of Atonement, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old on account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance born of my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old on account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance born of my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old on account of my beginningless greed anger and ignorance born of my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all. So please, with eyes closed, hold all of the actions of mind, but particularly speech and body, that have caused difficulty for you and others in the past. And resolving not to do these things in the future. To practice so that the mind and heart are clear. At least to reduce the chances of creating difficulties in the future. Now let it all go. Let the burden go. And then, later, you can think of how to make amends or restitution. Thank you. So I'll give you an example of making amends in a situation where I can't do it directly for a person. I will sometimes dedicate all my chanting in the morning to the benefit of that person. And then stay present with the chanting throughout the chanting so that there's Um, a greater value to it, whatever the merit is of it. Or sometimes I will dedicate a period of meditation, whatever benefit there is from a period of meditation, to another person. So there are many ways to um, repent and create uh, amends or restitution. Uh, The Dogen Zenji, the famous Zen teacher from the 1200s, talked about the bodhisattva's four methods of guidance. And one of them was kind speech, ways to guide others. 
And uh, this is what Dogen Zenji said, kind speech means that when you see sentient beings, you arouse the heart of compassion and offer words of loving care. If kind speech is offered, little by little, kind speech expands. So ponder that. If kind speech is offered, if we offer kind speech, little by little, kind speech expands. Where? Is that outward or inward or both? The kind speech expands. Thus, even kind speech that is not ordinarily known comes into being. Be willing to practice it for this entire life. Do not give up world after world, life after life. Those who hear kind speech from you will be deeply touched and have a joyful mind. They will always remember it. Kind speech is the basis for reconciling rulers and subduing enemies. Kind speech has the power to turn the destiny of the nation. I think this is particularly important now. Words from the 1200s, when people seem to have turned to a habit of acrimonious speech. Kind speech has the power to turn the destiny of the nation. So after my experience this morning, uh, I am going to take up kind speech as a very active practice. And if you wish, please take up this practice with me. Thank you.